This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin Supreme Court candidate Janet Protasewicz has taken a major spending lead with just over a month before the spring election. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that her campaign, along with outside political groups, have already committed to spending over $7 million in ads over in the weeks leading up to Election Day. Protasewicz currently holds a 7-to-1 spending advantage over her opponent in the race, conservative former Justice Dan Kelly. So far, just under $1 million have been committed to TV ads for Kelly, largely from the Uline family-funded Fair Courts America political group. Top Democratic state lawmakers held a press conference today praising Governor Tony Evers' proposal to make child care more affordable. One of his 2023 budget proposals, the plan would invest $340 million into the state's Child Care Counts program. Originally created in response to the pandemic, that program sends pay- send payments to over 3,300 child care providers across Wisconsin to help recruit and retain qualified staff. Democratic Senate Minority Leader Melissa Agard of Madison and Representative Melissa Radcliffe of Cottage Grove praised the proposal today, saying access to child care is important to growing the state's workforce and sustaining local businesses. Republican members of the state legislature's Committee on Higher Education are proposing a limit on how much the University of Wisconsin system can increase tuition. The Associated Press reports a bill introduced by Republican Representative David Murphy of Greenville and Senator Andre Jacques of De Pere would prohibit the Board of Regents from increasing in-state tuition by more than the previous year's rate of inflation. The lawmakers say this policy would help families plan for college expenses and keep tuition prices from rising. Tuition at UW System schools was frozen by Republican lawmakers in 2013. Though that freeze was lifted in 2021, the Board of Regents hasn't made any increases, instead relying on federal pandemic aid funding to cover costs. The bill was introduced earlier today and is now circulating for co-sponsors. Meanwhile, in news from UW-Madison, a man who allegedly made threats to UW-Madison on social media was charged today with a felony count of making terrorist threats, reports WISC-TV. Madison police say they arrested 26-year-old man last Friday after receiving a tip from the FBI. While the man has been released prior to a late March hearing, he's currently banned from the UW-Madison campus. The Madison School Board voted last night to rename Thomas Jefferson Middle School to Ezekiel Gillespie Middle School, reports the Capital Times. Gillespie was a black man who lived in Milwaukee in 1866 who successfully sued the state of Wisconsin for the right to vote. The board voted for the change unanimously last night, and the change will go into effect next school year. Gillespie Middle School is now the fourth MMSD school to receive a new name since January 2020. Madison's two mayoral candidates, incumbent Satya Rhodes-Conway and challenger Gloria Reyes, went head-to-head for the first time after last week's primary, showcasing their differing plans for issues facing the city. WRT producer Nate Wegehout breaks down what both candidates had to say. The debate was hosted by the nonpartisan policy research organization, the Wisconsin Policy Forum, and held at downtown Central Library. Incumbent Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway and challenger Gloria Reyes outlined their priorities for public safety, transit, climate change, and equity initiatives for city staff. 
What to do about Madison's housing crisis was one topic front and center. Under current projections, the city is expected to see 70,000 new residents by 2040, and both candidates agreed that the city needs to build more housing fast. But the candidates differ on how to do that. Rhodes Conway says that since she first took office in 2019, she's put an emphasis on building more affordable housing, saying that last year alone the city approved over 4,000 new housing units. But she says that the city can't just build apartments, but create pathways to affordable home ownership as well. What's missing is that first-time homebuyer opportunity. You can't anymore buy a home in my neighborhood as a first-time homebuyer. And we have to make sure that that opportunity is available for everyone in our community that wants to take advantage of it. I don't want the middle class to be priced out of Madison. So I'm going to keep working hard on the housing crisis to make sure that everyone can live here. Gloria Reyes, former school board president and deputy mayor under Paul Soglin, says that Mayor Rhodes-Conway has not been talking enough with the community about how they want to see housing growth in Madison. Reyes points to the city's most recent attempt to increase housing density in Madison, changing the definition of family and zoning codes to allow for more unrelated renters to live in a single-family home. That proposal is going before the Common Council this evening. Reyes says that the city is not doing a good enough job talking with people about controversial changes to their neighborhoods. We need more engagement at the city level. We need more transparency. And that's currently not what's happening. And that's why we are seeing the friction at city council meetings, and we're calling each other NIMBYs. Also a part of housing, housing people who don't have it. Reyes pointed to the Housing First initiatives that help move people off the streets and into housing and criticized the city's response to homelessness during the pandemic, specifically pointing to the temporary encampment at Rindall Park. I feel that we have, as a city, not done our due diligence in supporting our homeless populations. I mean, I think during COVID, uh, when we put homeless at Rindell Park, was devastating. It broke my heart because we don't treat people like that. But Mayor Rhodes-Conway fired back, saying that the reason people moved into Rindell Park encampment was because previous administrations did not do enough to support unhoused people. For decades... The way that the city of Madison treated homeless people was to warehouse them in church basements and to kick them off the Capitol Square and to watch them on camera. When the pandemic hit, we knew that that was not a sustainable or acceptable option. And so first, we transformed a community center into a shelter, and then we transformed the old fleet facility into a shelter, and then we bought a building and transformed it into an even better temporary shelter. And now we are on track to build Wisconsin's first purpose-built men's homeless shelter. Another hotly debated issue last night came in the form of the city's budget and the amount of debt the city has taken on in recent years. As federal COVID funding is expected to run dry next year, the city could be facing a $20 million budget shortfall starting in 2025. Reyes says that the city got into this situation by using one-time federal funds for projects that will need ongoing funding, specifically pointing to projects like bus rapid transit. And I will not jeopardize basic city services and impact our city staff. That's not going to happen. I think we have to really figure out, make decisions now so that we're not in this place in the future. We all wanted a bus rapid transit system. It works, right? We really need one. 
but it's, if we don't have the money, we can't spend it on a bus rapid transit system and continue to operate it. But for Rhodes-Conway, the problem lies less with city spending and more with the Republican-led legislature. According to a June 2022 report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum, state aid for local municipalities has dropped 63 percent over the last 30 years when adjusted for inflation. With that continued lack of state aid, Rhodes-Conway says that the city is running out of options. And for about a decade, the city of Madison managed to make it through, in part because we continue to have strong growth in our community, and in part because we added a series of fees to close the gaps. So you may not have noticed this, but we added a forestry fee, right? We added the ambulance fee. We add, so we added a number of fees over those 10 years to close the gaps. We're running out of fees, and the gaps are getting bigger because the cost to continue keeps going up. With these rising gaps comes a rise in the city's debt levels. Currently, the city spends around 17% of the general spending on paying off debts. According to the Wisconsin Policy Forum, that's projected to rise to 20% of the city's general spending by 2030. Reyes says that this is the worst place the city can be. And so we keep talking about state aid, state aid. We cannot depend on state aid. It's going to be great, but it's going to affect our bond rating. It's going to affect everything. And so we have to make some tough decisions here within the next couple of years. Mayor Rose Conway says that she's balancing infrastructure that the city needs with the amount of debt the city is willing to take on. Rhodes Conway says that she's picky about which projects get capital funding, but that the city needs to look elsewhere to fund those projects. And one is for us to continue to pursue, yes, other sources of funding, particularly federal funding for infrastructure. And now is a great time to do that and because we have an administration in the White House that is providing funds and understands and appreciates cities in a way that just has not been true in the past. The full debate is available on Wisconsin Eye, but requires a subscription to view. The spring election is exactly five weeks from today, on Tuesday, April 4th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuckyhout. The City of Madison plans to implement a program to decrease water utility bills by 20 to $30 for low-income residents. WORT reporter Jessica Lindahl headed out in the field to hear Mayor Rhodes-Conway and Water Utility Manager Krishna Kumar announce the two-year pilot program earlier today. Gathered at Madison Water Utility Southside offices today, Madison officials announced a new program to help low-income residents pay their utility bill. The Madison Customer Assistance Program, or MADCAP, will work to provide discounts to eligible residents. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway says the discount will be applicable towards all of the municipal services listed on their utility bill. This service spans all of the City of Madison services that are on the municipal services bill, which includes water, sewer, stormwater, urban forestry, resource recovery, and landfill services. The program has two tiers for eligibility. For residents that make less than 50% of the area's annual income, or around $46,000 for a family of two, they can qualify for a $20 monthly credit. For residents making less than 30% of the area's annual household income, or around $28,000 for a family of two, they can qualify for a monthly $30 credit. 
That comes as the water utility recently hiked rates for the third time in four years. Last year, state regulators approved the city's rate hike to fund water main replacements without taking on more debt. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the state's Public Service Commission approved the 18% rate increase last October, which raised the average water bill by $4. Mayor Rhodes Conway says that she hopes that the two-year pilot reconfigures the needs of the community and the way residents receive aid. This is the first water utility financial assistance program in Wisconsin. Uh, and the program that we're launching is a pilot program per the Public Service Commission's direction. Over the next two years, we plan to learn from it, to understand how many households uh, need assistance in our community, uh, and how we can better ease the way for them to participate, and how we can help them save water at the same time and be more water efficient. Krishna Kumar is general manager of the Madison Water Utility. He says that communicating the opportunity to low-income residents is a prime focus. The real challenge now is to make sure that this new program reaches all the residents who qualify for this program and they start actually benefiting from it. With that goal in mind, we are making concerted efforts to inform our residents about the availability of this novel affordability program. Eligible households can start applying tomorrow, March 1st. After application approval, the price decrease will be reflected in the upcoming billing cycle. You can apply online at the Water Utility homepage on the City of Madison's website or in person at the Madison Water Utility at 119 East Olin. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jessica Lindell. The time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the local news on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Republican state lawmakers have been pushing Wisconsin to adopt a flat income tax in the next biennial budget. That appears unlikely, though, according to co-chairs of the state's budget committee, even as new research comes out of UW-Madison supporting the economic policy. WRT reporter Abigail Levins delved into just what a flat tax is. A 3.25 flat income tax is unlikely to be included in the upcoming budget. That's according to the co-chairs of the Republican-led Budget Writing Committee in the state. Representative Bourne and Senator Marklin told reporters during a WISP politics forum today that while their long-term goal is to get a flat tax, it's, quote, not going to happen overnight. That's as Governor Evers has repeatedly said he opposes a flat tax and would not sign a budget that included one. Instead, the governor has proposed a 10% income tax cut for middle-class filers, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Moving to a flat tax in Wisconsin could be a dramatic switch from the state's progressive tax rate. That means the amount of taxes someone pays depends on their income. According to a report from Intuit, the company that makes TurboTax, Wisconsin had the 10th highest income tax in 2021. The lowest tax rate now is 3.54% for a single person with less than $12,000 for their yearly income. So what is a flat tax? That means that Wisconsinites, regardless of income, pay the exact same tax rate. But there are still a number of variables that can affect your bottom line tax. Jason Stein is the vice president and research director at the Wisconsin Policy Forum, a nonpartisan think tank. 
Stein says that creating a flat tax rate would allow the state's Mm. highest earners to keep more of their money because they'd have the most significant decrease under a flat tax. So there's just going to be more benefit. It's going to be derived by people who have income in that upper bracket. Today's news comes as UW Center Economics Think Tank is touting the potential benefits under a flat tax. The Center for Research on the Wisconsin Economy, or CROW, just released a report last week that changing the tax rate to a flat rate of 3.25% would increase revenue and labor. CROW, the think tank, was founded by leading economist Noah Williams, who served as an advisor to Scott Walker's campaign. Founded in 2018, CROW is funded by the National Science Foundation and receives funding from the Bradley Foundation and the Charles Cook Foundation, according to the Center for Media and Democracy's Source Watch tool. Kim Rule is co-director for CROW. He says that the report is not going to provide recommendations for politicians, but their goal is to inform voters and lawmakers about what a lower tax rate would bring to the state. Rule says that the report concludes that lowering the tax rate is an automatic positive, supporting the Republican claims for the policy. And so there's this tension that when you lower taxes, you make the economy more efficient. Uh, So firms invest more, build more businesses, make bigger investments in the state. Workers like you you and me are more incentivized to increase our skills, to go to school, to uh, do on-the-job training, to do things that will help us uh, be, be more productive because the returns to those are higher. Stein says that it is possible that lower taxes could encourage laborers. But he says this needs to be balanced against the negative effects a tax cut would have on government services. Implementing a flat tax would also cause a significant reduction in revenue and affect services in the state. Stein says that Wisconsin is relying on the individual income tax for most of its revenue. Even with the large surplus that we have long term, is going to make it difficult to sustain current funding levels or current service levels, you know, in programs like education, aid to local governments, the UW uh, healthcare programs for low-income individuals. Legislators are expected to continue to debate the state budget in the coming months before sending their own spending plan back to the governor later this year. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins. This week on the Cardinal Call, producer Madeline Alfonso looks back at the life of former UW-Madison Chancellor Rebecca Blank, who died of cancer earlier this month. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Madeline Afonso. Last week, former UW-Madison Chancellor Rebecca Blank passed away from cancer at 67 years old. To honor Blank's legacy at the university, I'm going to share some of her most notable achievements during her tenure and thoughts from one of her colleagues on her influence as a leader. Current Chancellor Jennifer Manukin said in a campus-wide email, quote, Becky was a leader who was in equal parts inspiring and deeply pragmatic. She had high expectations, a willingness to be direct, extraordinary mastery of the complex landscape of this great university, and boundless energy. Before I get into accomplishments, it's worth noting some details from Blank's background before she got to Madison. After receiving a PhD in economics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Blank held faculty positions at MIT, Princeton University, Northwestern University, and the University of Michigan. Blank was an internationally known economist and labor scholar whose expertise lay in low-income labor markets, government policy, and macroeconomics. 
She also spent time directing the University of Michigan's National Poverty Center and Northwestern University and the University of Chicago's Joint Center for Poverty Research. Blank worked in three presidential administrations. She advised the Council of Economic Advisors for the Clinton and H.W. Bush administrations and acted as Secretary of Commerce during the Obama administration. Under the leadership of former President Barack Obama, Blank worked to make businesses more innovative at home and more competitive abroad and accelerate job creation and increase economic growth by creating well-paying jobs. Former President Obama even tweeted his appreciation for his former colleague, saying, quote, Dr. Blank's four years serving in my administration was just one part of her extraordinary life. Whether in government or academia, she devoted her career to reducing inequality and increasing opportunities for others, and made everyone around her better. Chancellor Mnuchin said Blank's service in the Obama administration was, quote, one of her greatest sources of pride in what you rightly call her extraordinary life. Back in Madison, Blank held a nine-year tenure at Wisconsin's flagship university from July 2013 until May 2022, one of the longest from any leader of a Big Ten school. She accomplished an array of initiatives during her tenure. One of the most influential was Bucky's Tuition Promise. The program guarantees scholarships to low-income students from Wisconsin families making less than the state's median income, expanding access to a broader range of students. The Always Forward campaign, led by Blank, collected over $4 billion from a quarter million donors and created thousands of new scholarship funds for students and faculty. It was the largest fundraising effort in the university's history. Blank faced many challenges as her tenure began during a tuition freeze for in-state undergraduates that lasted the entire nine years of her chancellorship. She led the university through the duration of the pandemic and oversaw a change in legislation removing tenure protections from state law. That change marked a brief period of time where it was uncertain if the university would retain much of its faculty. Countless examples of Blank's steady leadership and numerous achievements while at UW-Madison could be listed and were even included in the former chancellor's own reflection written after departing UW-Madison for the position of president at Northwestern University. Now, former Chancellor Blank's legacy lives on in a few unique ways at UW-Madison. The newly created Rebecca Blank Professorship was recently announced and was designed to recognize accomplished faculty committed to service. It was named to honor the leadership and service shown by Blank. Last week, Botany Professor Kate McCullough was announced the first to receive the title a day before the news of Blank's passing. McCullough shared she was always impressed by Blank's ability to think on her feet and respond to questions and criticism with clarity and confidence. McCullough said Blank was, quote, an inspiration and always trying to find the best path forward for as many people as she could. Another hallmark accomplishment of Blank's tenure was the Public History Project and its debut exhibit, Sifting and Reckoning, which dove deep into the university's history of discrimination by displaying controversial elements of the university's past and was praised for the institution's frank scrutiny and bold introspection. The Public History Project was renamed the Rebecca M. Blank Center for Campus History last month to honor Blank's legacy. Director of the center, Katie Lucini Butcher, said she credits part of the project's success to Blank's commitment and belief in its potential impact, 
noting how she was fiercely supportive and aware of the risks and rewards of investing in it. Here's Casey on working with Chancellor Blank during the development of the project. Um, I think people who knew Becky will not be surprised by that. She, Once she made a decision, she was very decisive leader. So if she made a decision, she stuck with that decision mm-hmm. and she took responsibility for that decision. Um, but there were many people who challenged her and said, I don't know if we should do a project like this. It is not a uh, an unrisky thing to do. And she did not back down from supporting the project. So um, all of those challenges, she very much said, we are doing this project. I think it's important for our university. We're going to forge ahead. Casey continued on Blank's defining leadership style. And I respected that she didn't always make decisions that everybody liked, but at Mm -hmm. least she was decisive. And when she made a decision, she stuck by it and she stuck by the consequences. So when those decisions didn't work out, she also took full responsibility. Um, And I think that's really hard as a leader, right? It's really hard to have that kind of humility in the face of making mistakes. Um, And it comes, I think, with like the best leaders have that humility. And to close out, what it means to have the center named after blank. We want to make her proud, um, and we do want to continue to really live up to, I mean, an incredible legacy. Like, our project in turning into the center is just one piece of, like, an amazing life. Blank often shared her adoration for UW-Madison students, faculty, and all of its campus hallmarks, like the Terrace, Bucky the Badger, Camp Randall, Lake Mendota, and Daily Scoop ice cream, to name only a few. She wrote in a farewell blog post last May that, quote, It's been an honor every day that I've served as chancellor at this university. I have come to love this campus, as I know you do. I look forward to watching it continue to move forward. In other campus news, the UW-Madison Shared Governments Committee on Disability Access and Inclusion hosted a talk last Thursday on the history of eugenics at the university. They announced their plans to propose a plaque to be installed outside Van Nuys Hall's lobby to inform the public and recognize the university's past president, Charles Van Nuys' support and promotion of eugenics. The plaque is in its final stages of development, and the next step is to receive approval from the chancellor. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg looks to the skies to consider what makes red-shouldered hawks so special to Wisconsin. To Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment and today I want to talk about red-shouldered hawks because we just admitted one and it's been a very long time since we've seen this species here at our wildlife center. And I think part of the reason that we haven't seen it for so long is that it's considered a very rare species here in our state. 
so rare that the state status has actually been threatened since 1979. So this is a species that, although it doesn't have any sort of federal threatened or endangered status, it is still a wildlife species uh, that is of importance to the state of Wisconsin, and they have management plans for it. So to get one into rehabilitation for care or treatment already in itself is pretty cool and pretty rare, but also just the fact that we don't really see many of them, it means that there's probably not a lot of folks out there that know much about the species in general. So what is a red-shouldered hawk and why are they different from other hawks? Well, these are more medium-sized birds. They are typically found in the forest and definitely more dense forest with older mature trees. And typically those trees need to be in some sort of combination of open wetland or wet boggy areas. And so uh, this particular red-shouldered hawk that was admitted was from the Mesomany area along the Wisconsin River region. And that is a known area where they are known to breed and to be present. So it's pretty typical that we'd see them and already, especially this time of year, as they're getting right into that time period where they're coming to nest. So these birds, when I say medium-sized, I mean, you know, they don't have the giant big talons with the really long, you know, toes and feet. They're actually pretty dainty. They are more Cooper's hawk in terms of size, like if we're talking the feet and the diameter of their feet or the length of their talons. So they're actually a little bit smaller than most people think. They are very pretty. They have the kind of similar speckled coloration you might see in something like a red-tailed hawk, but they're called red-shouldered hawks because their shoulders are this bright orange-reddish color. They have a lot of barring on the tail and on the wing and even on the breast. These birds are living in very heavily forested areas, typically sharing their environment with things like barred owls, pileated woodpeckers, goshawks if it's more further north, um, and they actually tolerate each other and even sometimes use the same trees to nest in, which I think is really interesting. So they otherwise are, um, you know, getting to that time period where they are just coming back from overwintering. So usually when they're overwintering, they're going to be somewhere in Illinois, for example, or a little bit down south. You can see them as far south as Florida in the United States and even into Texas. And then they will sometimes overwinter down in southern Central America or mid-Central America. But they're definitely year-round residents that are in most of the south and eastern part of the United States. Um, and they breed otherwise in northern Wisconsin, or in a couple of those few key areas like Mesomany, where there's maybe, maybe really good habitat for them. So some of the um, individuals that are breeding here, you know, if they're just starting to come back, they're going to be starting to pair up and they're going to start nesting. And usually we're talking early March to mid-April. So those are coming back right now, which is why we're not surprised to see one here. And then they will usually have just a couple of eggs, a couple of babies, and then they are going to then go back to their overwinter grounds when it comes to the fall. So when they migrate, again, they're usually migrating in that late February period through mid-April, and then they are going to sit on their eggs for about 28 to 32 days. And usually it's the female that is going to incubate the eggs and the male supplies food to the female and then later to the hatchlings. And that's pretty typical of most of your raptor species. So this bird is one that we absolutely want to get hopefully uh, fixed uh, from its injuries. It does have a coracoid fracture and some pretty large wounds on the backside of the 
like kind of in the mid spinal area. So our dedicated vets with UW uh, Special Species, so the UW Veterinary School, um, really helps us to you know medically manage these cases, especially being a threatened species here in the state, to make sure that they're getting the best care possible, pain medications, antibiotics, wound care, everything that they need to be able to uh, return to the wild, especially because we want to make sure that this is a a species of low population or a population concern want to get this bird back out there into the breeding population right now so that they have the ability to have babies again here in the next couple of months. So the coolest things I would say about our red-shouldered hawks, besides the fact that they are just uncommon and that they have this really specific habitat that they depend on, again, the dense forest and the wetland areas, I think it's it's cool to talk about the management of these species. And if you look up on the uh, DNR's website, uh, talking about management considerations, Considerations and definitely take a look at these at dnr.wi.gov. You can also uh, check out some of the specifics for each of the different areas where they are known to, to be breeding or that are they are present. So when you think about the Chicramagon National Forest, so the Nicolay National Forest, they have guidelines for red-shouldered hawk management that includes retaining stands of at least eight hectares around their nesting sites. So that gives them as much as their territory that they need to be able to effectively hunt and to uh, give food to their young. They need to have stands that are adjacent to their nests being within 91 meters of their territory will not be clear cut if it's a practical, if there's an alternative available, you don't want to clear cut the trees around that area so that you can make sure that they have very good and distinct territory, again, for breeding and hunting. And then they don't build roads within certain distance of the nests. And if possible, they will either reduce or eliminate all human disturbance between the February and August time period, which is most critical for them for breeding, nesting, and then handering their babies. And uh, they continue to check on these, analyze the data, do nest surveys and other things to identify these birds, band those birds. There's some people that go out and actually band these species um, to figure out whether or not the management guidelines are effective. So basically making sure the old growth forest is still there and that they're not getting too close to the area for clear cutting or for roads, etc. So um, I think it's a really cool thing to really care a lot about species that are especially threatened and endangered in our state ones that maybe need a little bit more help. And I think rehabilitation is an effective tool for conservation in these exact circumstances. So that's our segment for today. Thank you for listening here on WORT. This has been a great segment about red-shouldered hawks. And if you have any questions about these species or about other animals that you find sick, injured, or orphaned, give us a call at 608-287-3235. Thanks for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporters tonight were Abigail Levins and Jessica Lindahl. Special thanks to feature contributors Madeline Afonso and the editorial crew at the Daily Cardinal and Jackie Sandberg. Our fundraisers this evening were Andy Height and Stacey Harbaugh. Super Dave and Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Jolly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Huffel, and thanks to all of you who called in your pledge of support this hour. You make it happen. And I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Up next is Spanish language news with Nuestro Patio. Good night.